Welcome back to Call Time with Katie Berenbaum. I'm so happy to be back and I'm so pleased with the response to last week's episode with Patty Wilcox. I think you're going to be equally pleased with my guest and my discussion this week. I've been trying to schedule this interview for a while, so I'm extra glad we finally nailed it down this week. Um, This guest is also one of my few repeat guests. I really try to keep it fresh and varied for all of you, but you'll hear that there's a particular angle to this discussion, hence the repetition. My guest graduated from Yale with a degree in English and theater before working as a gopher and doing various other things on various Broadway shows. Following that, he turned to writing, covering feature pieces and other broader subjects for the New York Times and the New York Times Magazine before going on to New York Magazine. He's written a memoir and a work of fiction, both of which have won numerous awards. He's currently chief theater critic for the New York Times and I've had him on the show in that capacity previously, so check that out if you're interested in hearing us discuss criticism. But today, we are going to be talking specifically about his latest book, Shy, The Alarmingly Outspoken Memoirs of Mary Rogers, which he co-wrote with Rogers herself, and which has been named one of Kirkus Review's Best Books of the Year, one of Library Journal's Best Books of the Year, the Washington Post's Best Books of the Year, and on the New York Times' Best Books of the Year list. So speaking only for myself, I basically devoured this book cover to cover in a single sitting. And if I know anything about my audience, I imagine many of them did as well. So without further ado, author of Shy, please welcome Jesse Green. Katie, how could you have done it in a single sitting? It's quite long. I embellished it. I couldn't read it in a single sitting. I would say three solid sittings, less than a week for sure. Wow. That's great. That's what I like to hear. I, I did have a goal for myself in, in writing it, and we'll talk about how the whole writing came about. But I really wanted to make sure that there were approximately three great jokes on every page or funny sentences or crazy things happening so that you really would have trouble leaving because you'd want, want to see what the next thing was. And luckily, the person I was writing about and with could provide those. So uh, I guess it worked with you. It really did. And like I was saying before we were recording, it's rare that I find myself reading a new book and stopping every five seconds to text someone I know a sentence from the book or some fact that I learned from the book. And that was happening the entire time I was reading it. And as soon as I read it, I was like, I got to get Jesse back on the show. And I know you're so busy based on your bio, everyone can imagine. So I really appreciate your taking the time with me today. It's great. I'm, I, I love talking about Mary and about the book. Let's get right into it. Since, as I said, we already had our previous episode where we discussed your life and career and criticism. So I want to get right into the book and hear about the origins. I think I read in a previous interview of yours about the book that she came to you with the idea for help writing her memoirs. Was this something that was on your radar at all beforehand? How did that all come to be? I'd known Mary since I interviewed her for a Times Magazine piece about one of her sons, Adam Gettle, the composer and lyricist who was at the time working on what became The Light in the Piazza. And while I was profiling him, I thought, oh, I'd of course heard of Mary Rogers, his mother, 
the daughter of Richard Rogers, a composer in her own right, at a time when there were virtually no women composers on Broadway. And Doyen, by then, of philanthropy. She was the chairman of the Juilliard School at the time. So I did go and meet with her and her husband, Hank, second husband, Hank, and had a blast and was given a little too much information about Adam. They were a little too forthcoming, just seemed to be reflexively over-honest, which I loved. Very nice for a journalist, maybe not so much for their child. But anyway, we became friends, which rarely happened in those situations. And over the years, she met my family and we spent time together. And I did know that she had been working on her memoirs. And I, then I knew that she was not happy working on her memoirs. And then I knew that she had returned the advance on her memoirs. And then she had been convinced to start them up again. And then she didn't enjoy it anymore. And she returned it again. I don't know how many times this went back and forth. But at some point, she did come to me and say that she had talked about it with the publisher. And she thought the way for her to move forward would be to work with me on it. Because we had so much fun together because I did know a lot already about her life, and I, or so I thought, and because I knew a lot about the world that she came from and operated in. So she asked me to consider it, and that took a lot of back and forthing as well, because although I was willing, she would then get scared. She was really conflicted. And the source of the conflict was an unusual one for a memoirist. She wanted to maintain her life brand as an outspoken and painfully honest and humorously honest person. But she, of course, didn't want to tell absolutely everything. She had made in her life a habit of telling almost absolutely everything. And she felt that in some way it would be a cheat if she didn't go all the way. And I convinced her that wasn't the case, that to get 95% or 97% of a life as interesting and full and crazy and moving and funny as hers was a terrific bargain and the world shouldn't be deprived of it and she should get over that complex she had. And she agreed with that and we then signed the papers and started. That's the long background. And how was that process? Because I was reading the books and it was, as you say, so fun and you felt like she was actually talking to you felt more like a monologue in some cases rather than something written. It felt like you were at a bar and she was like on her third vodka stinger and regaling you with stories. So was it like that? Like you were recording these conversations and then writing things? Was she writing things? How did all that work? We were working out how that would happen the whole time we were putting the information together. Those two things were going side by side, but no writing happened at first. What would happen is I would go up to her apartment on Central Park West twice a week, generally, arrive at around 9 or 9.30. We'd sit in the living room, she on the yellow sofa, and I in a chair nearby with my laptop, and I would provoke her. Sometimes the night before, I'd send her an email with a topic to think about, she did no writing. I just listened as we, as she answered my questions and as we laughed and as she insisted on something and I checked it and she was wrong or she was right or she said something about a piece of music and I went to the piano and I said, you mean this? And I sometimes 
played something and she said, yeah, but it's a D flat or whatever. We just had a ball for two years doing that twice a week. And those sessions would go for three or four hours, at which point we would adjourn and go into the dining room and Hank would join us and we'd have a nice lunch. And then I'd go home and like decompress. So that was the process. At, at the same time as that was happening, that we would discuss what was the finished product going to look like. She had a lot of things she didn't want it to look like. Both her parents, Richard Rogers, as I said, the some people would say the great American musical theater composer, at least pre-Sondheim, and her mother, a very accomplished woman herself, and certainly a very formidable woman, had each written memoirs, her mother more than one, and she hated them all and considered them works of fantasy. They were so full of obfuscation and outright lies. So we knew that, and she hated, and then I wrote books, and she hated apologies for my life books and she hated fatuous books and she also didn't really like chronological books because there were a lot of things she didn't like that we had to sift through to find the things that were left that she might like at the same time i was i began to realize uh, and and this addresses how you started katie that the experience i would want a reader to have would be like the one i was having which was sitting at her knee, as it were, and hearing the great stories. And I just needed to figure out how we could structure this so that the entire book could be her talking. And yet I knew that it wasn't possible to do just that because, and I'll give you the example I've given many times, she didn't refer to her father as Richard Rogers, the great American composer, born 1909, right. died, died. She just said, Daddy. And she said, Mommy. And she referred to Steve, not Stephen Sondheim. And then Oscar Hammerstein was Aki. And all these people were just people in her life. They weren't figures. And yet for readers, many of them would be obscure, whether because they were obscure or because the readers were from a different generation. And also... I would hear Mary say things that I didn't agree with and we would talk about it. And she would say, Oh, get that in the book. I'm like, how do I get that in the book? I, I don't want to have her kind of explaining herself. It's not how she talks. So the clue came for me in a book that she had written with her mother, which was based on an advice column they had done in a magazine called a, a Word to the Wives, the title had been Richard Rogers, and it purported to answer modern-day etiquette questions from the point of view of women of two different generations, and the mother would answer, Dorothy would answer, and Mary would answer, and they would be in two different colors of type. And originally what I wanted was that. I wanted Mary talking in one color of type, and me jumping in, correcting, adding facts in another color. That turned out to be, in the 2010s, prohibitively expensive. <laughs> so that wasn't going to happen. And in the end, I, I worked out this idea of using the equivalent of footnotes, except that they're not academic, and using that as a way of letting Mary talk for 450 pages, and yet help readers understand the context of everything she was saying 
and give myself a way in to disagree, to add, to check things that she spoke of. And eventually, because as we'll discuss, she got sick, to take over because there had to be a way of telling the end of the story as well. That's what was going on during the two years we spent twice a week. We were developing the content by just having out-of-order discussions about her whole life, many of which were totally jaw-dropping to me, and I couldn't even believe they were true until I checked them, and at the same time figuring out what the book would physically look like and how it would be. Yeah, I was going to say, structurally, the book is very unique, or interesting, rather, because of this use of like cheeky footnotes and then also it's somewhat linear but not the most linear you say in the book and you said in another interview that another title she thought about was where was i or something like that and i guess you said she didn't like linear novels or linear biographies rather from the beginning were you always oh this is going to be unique i have to figure out what the structure of this book is going to be like. And I don't think there are a lot of other memoirs or autobiographies with this unique footnote style, as you say, this non-academic footnote style. Were you looking to any other models or was this something that was purely your own invention? I didn't really have any models, although around the same time as we were talking through this, there began to be in journalism a trend of talk pieces at New York Magazine and then, and now at the New York Times Magazine, which had footnotes that were not exactly footnotes, but that sort of, especially digitally, would pop up as you rolled over certain parts right. of the text. And I really loved that. And I wish I could have done that. But again, we were making a print book first. And also, I, I just, there was a, a way in which I wanted to do something you couldn't do with that, which my idea was that the voice of those footnotes, which would start out neutral, but quite assertive. There's another voice here, but not really clear who it is. And then grow over the course of the book until at a certain point, I, as she says in it, until I emerged from the footnote closet. The only other model I had, there, there had been no memoir that I could think of that did what she and I both wanted this to do. But there was a great memoir about Diana Vreeland mm. called DV. And it was by George Plimpton. It was, it purportedly was just her talking, but it was clearly edited tremendously by Plimpton into this wild monologue. And I, it, it wasn't that the content was similar, but I wanted the kind of jaw dropping, like going from one crazy thing to the next thing and just, falling in love with the astonishing life that you were reading about. So th that's the only other one that I thought of. The, the problem was that we first had to gather enough information in order to begin the, the writing process to see how the writing would actually work, how this concept would work. And that didn't really begin until very nearly the end of our time together. So you have these two years where you go to her house twice a week and you talk and you type things up, you record, I imagine. And then I did, I did not no recording. No recording. Was that, it was all is that your belief or she didn't want to be recorded? I don't think she would have minded, but I don't like recording. And 
I'm a really fast typist. I, I would have been horrified to have the process of transcribing hundreds and hundreds of hours of tapes would have been too daunting. I had a day job. And also I found you know, a lot of what we would talk about was clearly not going to go into the book, not because it was secret, although there were a few things that we marked off from the beginning as she would talk about them with me, but I knew that they weren't for publication or some of them were for publication. She would say, if that person is dead, when the book comes out, then you can. Wow. It. it was always assumed between us that I would do the writing. Part of the reason that she had given up previously was that she was tired of writing in her life. She had been writing for 60 years or whatever, and she had tried to write this a few times. And I had read what she had written and the publisher had read what she had written and it had no fun. It was interesting and clever, but it was completely lacking in her voice. And oddly enough, she couldn't write her voice, but I could because I sat there listening to it for years. So yeah, for two years, we were just doing that, the one thing, and only at the end of that time did I begin the experiment of trying to turn some of it into actual prose. So fascinating. So there were so many things I loved about the book and about this portrait of Mary and the time period. I feel sad I didn't know her. I feel like I would have loved her. Like I said, like the kind of person you want to get a drink with and get regaled with stories. One of the things I loved was this sort of old New York aspect of it, especially as a lifelong New Yorker, as I said, it, it really appealed to me. But in that way, it felt, yeah, old fashioned, a part of New York that maybe doesn't exist anymore or only exists through those few people like Mary. Did you see it as a portrait of old New York partially? Was that something that drew you to the story in the first place, in addition to the Broadway aspects? The Broadway aspect and the New York aspect are intertwined, were merged of course, yes. in her. And yes, <clears throat> she was so much at the center of all the things going on in that world. I don't say she was the most important figure, but she was right in the middle of it all. Every show you know or heard about or think about from the, the period in which she was active, or even from when she was a child, because she's there when her father's composing Oklahoma. And when he's doing Carousel, he's in Bucks County at Aki's house, Oscar Hammerstein's house, and she goes there for the weekend and meets little Steve Sondheim, another one of these stray orphans that the Hammersteins would pick up from time to time. And uh, thus begins the relationship that in many ways was the love of her life, uh, although it becomes very awkward in, in later on in one of the most jaw-dropping stories of the book. But um, anything that I, as a young person, had read about or dreamed about or thought about, oh, these incredible talents and their fights and their feuds and their egos and all that. She was right there. She was in the middle of them. She was brokering some of them and she was like playing word games with all of them. And she worked for Leonard Bernstein for 20 years as on the young people's concerts. I mean, just everywhere you look, she was there. And particularly in relationship to Sondheim, both as one of his closest friends and as her great love, but also content-wise, because she was 
strongly involved in various ways with with some of the material he wrote, particularly Merrily We Roll Along, to some extent Company, and they and they were collaborators as well, writing songs together when they were young. So all of this made it for me a thrilling chance to give an evocation of a time and a place when a not very large number of people were creating what was then the core of American culture. This was when theater, and particularly musical theater, was nationally popular. The pop charts were occupied largely with material coming from Broadway. This is ages ago now. But it was a time that had a halo around it for me that I loved the chance to explore and to get down on paper. So that was absolutely part of it. The drinking of those people, that era, the amount they drank was just prodigious, how it affected their behavior. That fascinated me. The sexism that she endured as a woman trying to do a job that was considered among the most exceptionably male privileges and domains. And her guts to just push through all of that and push through a pretty crappy childhood, despite the wealth was very moving to me. And I wanted to recreate that within that era as well. You're covering so many things. People can tell that you are a journalist and were someone who interviewed people because you're covering so many of my questions and topics already in your answers. On that subject, something that really struck me about the book and the way it was written was it seemed so balanced in the way that it was this really inside baseball look at theater and in many ways the business of theater. How did Once Upon a Mattress get made? What did it take to actually produce a show on Broadway back then? As you say, Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein, what were they actually like? And then a huge part of it also was psychology and a, a portrait of a really vulnerable, candid portrait of a person's life that was in many ways very difficult. Um, was that balance important to you? Like, I feel like you could have written this book and it was just like a dishy gossip book about the world of theater. And then there's another book that could be written about her losing a child herself. But I loved that it had both of those in there. Was that always important to you? Or did that just spring naturally because that's who Mary was? It needed to be both. It was always important to me that we, that the reader see the world through her emotions, through her personality and her style of dealing with her emotions. And it was among the hardest things to capture accurately because although she was extremely insightful about herself and her motivations and her psychology and extremely detailed and candid about the things that happened to in her life, including tragic things, including foolish things, including like a, what she would think of as a amusingly weird propensity to fall in love with gay men. She was at the same time, not sentimental. She, she never cried. Even, and she would make fun of me a little bit because she would tell me a story and I would cry. And she would say, there you go again. You know, just you cry. Why do you cry so much? She only cried at happy things, never at sad things. And she understood that this was defensive on her part. She had such an unpleasant childhood that she, and a mother who she felt was trying to make her cry because it would make her vulnerable. 
that she refused to do it. And that became her style. But I needed to find a way to let her be that way and yet not pretend that meant she didn't feel things and hadn't lived a, a very emotional life. It just wasn't expressed in the way that we're used to and in the way that certainly among theatricals is not that common, where we theatricals, and I include myself among them, are supposed to cry at the drop of not even a hat, of a hair. And she just wasn't that person. So there came moments in the book when I had to figure out how to tell really painful stuff. And I had tons of material from talking with her, albeit all out of order, because something might have been discussed five different times over the course of years. Uh, not just the two years we were talking, but just from my knowledge of her. And put that together in a way that was true to her way of handling emotion and yet allowed the readers to have my experience of great emotion. Oh, that's a really fascinating way to put it. You read the book and you really get the sense that she, first and foremost, was a survivor. That she went on and was never bitter and didn't seem to pity herself, as you say, despite having all these difficulties. You mentioned, too, her difficult upbringing slash, obviously, the privilege of being Richard Rogers' daughter, growing up in this sort of storied echelon of New York City society. You've said in a previous interview you likened writing about her to writing a Jane Austen novel or that it was like a Jane Austen sort of society, which again, I am the target demo. I wrote my thesis in college about Jane Austen. (laughs) Can you expand on that a little bit and what you meant by that? I think I know what you mean in terms of the um, societal pleasantries and how everything has three meanings, but I'd love to to hear uh, what you meant by that. She and I talked about Austen. Uh, I love that. My way into thinking about it was the terrible pressure on her as a notable young woman to, before anything else, get married. Find a way to button, button her life together with a marriage that was, that was so worth everything to the world she grew up in and to her parents in particular, that it was meant to actually trump any individual traits or talents that she as a young woman might have. And that immediately made me think of the women in Austin. Part of the movement in those novels is the development of self-knowledge in the young women that they need not and or should not sacrifice themselves for the expected marriage. And that's worked out in several different ways in those novels. And Mary flailed and fought and did everything in her power not to do what was expected of her and to squash herself through marriage. And yet she was, A, really a sexual being. She was very upfront about it and was insistent that we talk about it. Now, now this is one of those things where I was like, maybe we'll cut back on a little of that, Mary. And she said, no. <laughs> she, she said, this is what's missing from books like my mother's. This is what's missing from what most women are told by older women. They're not getting the truth. And so she insisted that we go through that. But also, 
she made the same fatal mistake, a nearly fatal mistake. She made a bad first match in marriage. And happily, she had three great children as a result of it. But it was an abusive and extremely unhappy situation. He, unbeknownst to her, or perhaps she admitted a little beknownst, was gay. Completely closeted, of course, at that time. And as a, a Wall Street lawyer from a wealthy Westchester family, you just weren't going to be that way. It was a terrible time, as she said, for him to be gay and a terrible time for her to be closeted in her own way and unable to recognize the situation she had wound up in. And then in between her marriages, that whole section of the book I love because, yeah, it's a little prurient and it's a little bit, oh, which name is she going to mention next? But you really feel her working out the problem. What What is love supposed to be in her life? What is sex supposed to be in her life? What are children supposed to be in her life? And she always wanted children much more than she wanted to be married. And she had six children. It, it, we, in, in many of those ways, the Austin template, of course, gets changed and moved to a very different milieu and a Jewish society. And we haven't talked about anti-Semitism, but it comes in there, or at least the kind of ghettoization of, of wealthy Jews of New York, their wealth not really gaining them admittance to the yeah. rest of wealthy New York society. In, in those ways, Austin became a little bit of a touchstone, perhaps more for me than for her, although, as I say, we, we did discuss it. I just love that comparison. And like I said, target demo in a big way. Um, We've been talking about her in so many ways, her husbands, her various lovers. You mentioned it was definitely clear to me reading the book that Sondheim was in many ways the love of her life, as you say. I, I think besides her and the sort of voiceless you that becomes more clear over the course of the novel, he is the character that looms the largest, maybe also along with her parents. Um, I assume that wasn't also of interest to you in writing the book. I assume people have asked you this too, and you don't have to answer. Did the book come out after Sondheim's death purposefully because of all this information? No. I'm not going to deny that it made that aspect a little easier for me sure much as i mourned his death but no it came out because it took me that long to write it and then they then they had to edit it and produce it it was a difficult book to produce just physically because basically every page had to be its own design um because some pages have none and some have eight footnote no it wasn't that and sondheim knew about the book i and i had spoken to him about it during the process although it was before I knew what Mary was going to tell me about their relationship and that, that it had even gone so far, and I won't say too much about it because you'll want to read it, listeners, but they had a trial marriage that when she told me about it, I nearly had to be scraped off the floor. I just kept asking her, what? How? What? And it's just as awkward as you can imagine. So I certainly knew that they were very close, and that excited me because as all of us are, especially now in the nearly two years since he's died, Sondheim fanatics. I grew up as a Sondheim fanatic. I had, as many young people did, a correspondence with him for many years 
before I became a theater professional. I, I knew that aside from being very close, they had been collaborators in their youth. I just didn't have any idea how deep it would go. I really didn't. And it, I needed there to be a kind of through line for the book emotionally. Not that there aren't a hundred of them, but I, I wanted to, once I understood how central he had been and continued to be. And then when I went to the memorial service for her and the emotional highlight of it was his performing a song based on a theme that they had written together when they were young, I realized that that was going to be one of the ways I could keep readers on a kind of path through the book, even though it jumps around. So at the beginning, in the first section of the book, which is out of order, as Mary would have loved, as, as Mary did because she read that section, it takes place in a kind of no time. It's over many decades, but it involves games that she's played in her life. The games that she played with her parents, which were not very pleasant. The games that she played with her friends, including Sondheim, which were devious and hilarious. And the games that she played with her own children, which are pretty funny as well. I got, I needed to get him into the book right away, even though it was out of order, so that it, he could continue to play this role, even for the many years in which we're not quite hearing from him. After their trial marriage, they remained very close for the rest of their lives, but it, he, he was a more intermittent figure in the drama of her life. And the other figures, as you mentioned, are her parents. And naturally, they come in from the beginning. And, and in fact, one of my biggest interventions is my first footnote occurs after the first word of the book. I just interrupt the very first sentence after one word. Uh, and the first word of the book is daddy. How apt. Reading the book, and I think some people have suggested this, it definitely seemed to me that her career was hindered by being sandwiched between these two great men in her life, her father and her friend slash trial husband slash love of her life, Sondheim. <laughs> do you think of it that way? Or do you think that's a, a not very nuanced approach to her life and career? I, I want to also add into that many people have referred to her as the, it's not a great metaphor, but the, the meat in the sandwich between her father and her son. And that too. Uh, yes. And she rejected that. Uh, she thought it was funny. And she certainly understood why people might want to see it that way. And she enjoyed that there was a family lineage fed also from, from her friendships, not just with Steve, although primarily Steve, but many of the people that were just hanging around her life. Totally. Were, Hal Prince, you know, all those guys. Hal Prince, Leonard Bernstein, John Kander, all the, the greats. But now she was quite insistent. She said, and I love this about her. She said, I'm not at their level. Now, I, I don't agree with all of her self-assessments and I think she was too hard on herself. And I would sometimes actually, you know, play something of hers to show her that it was better than she remembered or that it was really quite fascinating. And particularly as she got older and more confident in her writing, she really was became very experimental within the vein of American musical theater and reaching out toward a sound that anticipates her son's sound while 
maintaining the structural integrity of, of her father. So there is something to that. But her conclusion was that she was a really good conduit for the family gene. She just refused to see herself as being in the same top drawer. And she had a very kind of strict rating of who was in which drawer in her talent chiffonier. But what I think is that we don't know because she simply couldn't get the opportunities that a man would have had, even though she did get some opportunities that a man wouldn't have or anyone wouldn't have because of the family name. And she's quite frank about it. And when she was just out of college, she got a publishing contract to do a book of songs for children that, you know, she marched right into the offices of the leading music publisher who was her father's publisher and it was published. And so there, there's that. But in terms of actually developing her own talent and then having the means of exploring it in produced shows, she was thwarted right and left in part, I believe, because of her being a woman. It's definitely clear reading the book, A, that she didn't really realize, but B, that how much misogyny and sexism, how much of a role they played in her career. It's subtle, though. There's the obvious stuff. There's the people constantly mashing on her, men constantly mashing on her. She's going in for what she thinks is a business meeting, and oh, there he goes, he's coming after her. These are things that sound like old jokes from movies, but were actually real. And people you admire are doing this to you. And people who could record your music are like making an obvious quid pro quo of sleeping with them. She was perfectly willing to sleep with people she wanted to sleep with, but she didn't want to sleep with people she didn't want to sleep with, especially for that purpose. But there was much subtler ways as well. So that she, she was by, by choice in order to avoid competition with her father, which she felt certain she would lose. And also because of where the opportunities lay for a woman, she was shuffled over to the side in genres that a woman might ha be excused for exploring, yeah. like children's Kid stuff, or yeah. songs for animals, and <laughs> Rin Tin Tin, and commercial music, like she wrote the Prince Spaghetti song, and things like that. And, and even by the time she got to Once Upon a Mattress, it was it's based on a fairy tale. So the, the way she found into that world ended up limiting her because it reinforced ideas about what someone like her should be allowed to and could profitably do. I obviously was hooked into the book because of my theater background and being interested in that. And so I was anticipating the parts of the book that were less about her theatrical career I would be less interested in. But before reading the book, I had no idea that she wrote Freaky Friday. I just had no idea, which is one of my favorite books and movies, though I'm of the Jamie Lee Curtis vintage. And I was so pleased to read that part of the book. Was that as enjoyable for you to write those parts about her later life, her philanthropy, her work with Freaky Friday, her children's books, as enjoyable as writing about this bro old Broadway world for you? I enjoyed uh, learning about and writing about the creation of Freaky Friday and uh, the other books in that series. And in particular, her kind of re-gearing her factory toward prose when she began to feel that there wasn't a future for her 
if she tried to continue writing music for the theater, although she did intermittently for the rest of her life. But she felt, and I think rightly, that uh, one of the advantages she did have as a woman was that she wasn't penalized for trying new things the way she feels too many men are. Like men, she said, will feel like a failure if they do not succeed brilliantly at the one thing they needed to do. Whereas many women, or at least herself, can try something, be good at it, or maybe not good at it, or whatever, and then just try something else. And it's, she connected it to motherhood, where you just, you know, you, you just have another kid, you have another chance. So she loved creating a new way to be as a cultural person by developing these stories. And they're really clever and very well-constructed books if you read them. And so that was a lot of fun, and it gave an, a second act to the to the creative part of the book. I mean, her life had many acts as, a, as an emotional story, but it was also good to have several acts for her as a figure in the world. The third act, as a philanthropist and as an arts educator and the head of Juilliard, was frankly less interesting. And, and she really didn't want it in the book at all. Mm. She said that there's nothing interesting about raising money for even a good institution. <laughs> and I argued with her, and of course I had the final say, for reasons we, we will discuss, that we, we simply couldn't ignore it, but that I would try to reduce it to just one chapter. And, and that's pretty much what I did. And in at one chapter, there's enough of interest, I think, not only to see her switch gears to to become a person at the very highest level, once again, of yet a new part of the cultural world, but also how she functioned differently from how any man would, mm -hmm. or really, to be honest, any other person on earth would, because to be running, to be the chair of Juilliard, and to really be incapable of mathematics is an amazing... Was she incapable uh, of mathematics? been so beloved for doing it. She just couldn't, she had a problem with zeros, as she said. And she didn't mean with people who were zeros, although she didn't really enjoy them either. But she seriously, and it wasn't a joke, she had trouble remembering whether $100 was $100 or $1,000 or $10,000. This may speak to having been raised in an environment of wealth, although she only got a quarter allowance or whatever it was she got. But I was once... I had to cancel a meeting with her because I said, the rain last night, our ceiling fell in. And of course I was crying. And she was like, oh, what do you need? What do I, should, should I send you $10,000? And I said, 10,000, what? She said, or a hundred. She didn't, she wasn't sure which was which or what it meant. Just for the record, I didn't take any, but she was also reflexively generous in that way. And I should add at this point, this is all based on my experience of her. She liked me. She wouldn't have asked me to work with her and spend that much time if she didn't. There are people she didn't like, and there are people who did not like her. As you can imagine, a, a woman like that is going to turn off a bunch of people, and not just bad people, but people who aren't into that style. This wasn't a biography. I didn't really go there. But I have to acknowledge when I speak about the book that some other people might describe other experiences. Sure. Personally, I tend to not really like the kind of people that everyone likes. I found 
myself loving her and loving her candor. And That's what the problem was. So if somebody is brought to her to play his music, who wants to make a musical version of Freaky Friday, and she doesn't like the music, she's not going to accept it. Sure. She's going to say, I'm, this isn't the right sound for me. I don't, it's not something I enjoy, and I think it's wrong for the material. And that can be crushing to someone. And furthermore, she was a fierce caretaker for the intellectual property of her family. Yep. And uh, Rand was the main representative of the Rogers family in the Rogers and Hammerstein Foundation for many years. Let a lot of directors know that she didn't like what they were doing or didn't let them do it. So that's the kind of thing. But I think that's in some ways yet another example of subtle sexism. I think women are pressured to be liked by everyone and not to really let people know that you don't like what they did or you don't like this or whatever. And I respect that she was able to give her real opinions about things, which also comes with status and age and wealth and all those different things. Okay, you spend two years with her, you start writing. She obviously passed away, sadly, in 2014. At what stage was the book in when that happened? And then how did you go about moving forward with it after her passing? I had written 10 pages. Wow. (laughs) And are those 10 pages in the book? Or did we eventually do away with them? Yes, yes. Okay, good. Nope, they're part of the, the opening. First 10. It's expanded from that, but I had told her, she kept saying, can we get to the writing part? Can we get to the writing part? And I, said, I don't even know where you were in 1973. I, I'm not ready. But after what, she said, I'm not going to live forever. And I, for my own reasons, again, I'm the one crying in the corner. I refused to believe that she was winding down in any way. So I didn't really see the signs the way I think her family did and the people who helped her. I did put it off too long. And then at some point I find I felt, okay, I have enough to start. And we talked about, I said, I, I think a way into the book might be all these different games you've played in your life. And it'll help us establish that this is not going to be chronological. That it's going to be fun and a little crazy. And when she said, that sounds like a good idea. And I asked a few more questions. I wanted to line up all the information, make sure I had it right. And I went home and wrote 10 pages and I sent it to her and then went to meet with her the next week. And she had the pages there and I could see that she had written things on them. Basically what she told me was she didn't like them. (laughs) And I said, why, Mary? It's what we discussed. And she said, can you make it meaner? Can you make it funnier? And I said, I don't think that's possible, Mary. I, the section is called hostilities. I don't know how much meaner it's possible to make. It's really snarky and bitchy in, in certain <laughs> ways. And uh, anyway, we had a back and forth about it. I had to think really hard about what she meant because that was our last meeting. After that, she canceled our appointments and then she was in the hospital and then she was in hospice. It was a very weird and awkward place to have left the project and partly my fault and partly fate. And also I was mourning. It took me a while to just recover. She had been such an enormous part of my life 
for hours a week and then thinking about it for hours more and typing and planning and making timelines and checking facts and looking into uh, the priest who supposedly prepared her for when she converted to Catholicism. And oh yes, she converted to Catholicism as a young woman. Another one of these jaw dropping facts, mostly to annoy her parents. And I, um, it took me some time to figure out how to proceed. I knew I had enough material. I had more than 600 pages of material. Uh, but I was cowed by the idea of doing that without her and without her approval. It did take me a long time. And that's the real reason the book didn't come out until last year. What was the editing process like? It was edited in pieces over over those 10 years. When I would finish a, a chunk, I would give it to my editor. There was virtually no change in the structure. And the publisher already knew the plan about the notes and all that. So that was left alone. There was uh, a certain level of typical editing, like word choice and things like that. But of course, a lot of it was in her voice. And even if it was me creating her voice from many different things she said, that was largely left alone. There were, however, uh, plenty of things where somebody had a question about whether we should really include this or not. And there were a couple reasons for that. I, I should mention that she did an extraordinary thing before she died. Um, and, and to talk about this, I first want to say her kids are really amazing people, all, all five who survived childhood. And she did not want them to have any say over the book. Um, she felt, first of all, that it would be unmanageable. There are five people, all with extremely developed personal taste, different emotional connections to their mother and what they would want in a book about her. And it would just be impossible to vet that in a five-way melee. She had me write, and then she revised a document in which she explained that they were not to read the book. They, so they never read the book until it was in Gallup. Wow. And instead, she named a member of the family, a second cousin, who was in, a pub, in publishing and was, in fact, at Farrar Strauss at the time, which was the publisher of the book which was an extraordinary good fortune to, to be the person who would read the book when it was done and make a one-time fiat decision. It is, or it, whether or not it was the book that Mary would have wanted to have published. And that was, as it turned out, the greatest possible gift because it, much as I did not want to offend any of the kids whom I admire, it just would have been impossible if I had to constantly be deferring to them and asking them and questioning them. They were very helpful to me when I did have questions. They were wonderful. And they didn't, they never, they never pressed about seeing it. They were fantastic. Once there was the approval from the family representative who was editing the book at that time, although then it later passed to another editor at Forrest Strauss, we were good to go. This is a little bit about you. You mentioned you had a day job in addition, obviously being the chief theater critic of the Times. Did that feel like the day job and this felt like this like greater creative thing you were working towards? Or did this feel like the day job or did it switch off? How did you balance those two things? 
I got the job at the time is midway through the period between when Mary died and when the book came out. Pretty much exactly five five years into those ten years, it shifted at that point because although at New York I was the only critic, whereas at the Times at the beginning I was a co-chief critic with Ben Brantley until he stepped down a few years later. Uh, somehow writing more reviews for New York was less work than writing fewer reviews for the New York Times, just because the Times is such a, a top-heavy machine. And you, a lot, you spend a lot of time doing a lot of things that aren't the writing. At New York Magazine, it was me and my editor, and I don't think anyone else ever saw the copy. It just I wrote it at night and went out, and it left me plenty of time. Once I moved to the New York Times, I had to take a leave. It was part of the deal by which I came there that I was to be given a, a leave early on. Normally, you can't have a leave until you've been somewhere <laughs> a certain amount of time, but I just needed some months where I had nothing else to do. And if I hadn't had that, I could never have finished the book. Mm. I finished a lot of the book during that time. The Times and New York always felt like my day job because they were paying me money. And Mary felt like my night job, A, because she was a nighttime character in my mind, going to openings and all of that, despite the fact that she also had to be a daytime character because she was a mother, but also because I only got a small advance and there was no money coming in from writing that book. I couldn't think of it as my day job. And I have children myself. And at the time, they were starting to go to college. And I just I couldn't risk losing my day job. I mentioned in your bio, you've written a work of fiction before, a memoir before. This is your third book, fourth book? It depends on what you can. I also, I do one in each genre. I also did with my friend Meg Wallitzer a book of cryptic puzzles that we wrote together for a magazine called, a newspaper called Seven Days back in the 80s. But it's my third book that's really a book. And now I'm working on a fourth. I was going to ask, it's clearly another thing that you love. And I was going to ask if there are other books in the future. What's the fourth book about? I don't think I would ever do another I is. I, we never knew quite what to call it. It's not a biography because I'm not out to tell everything accurately. And although I did check everything I could, and it's not quite a memoir because I wrote it, even though it was her mm -hmm. life. Who knows what it is? It's its own thing. And anyway, who else would be as interesting in so many different planes of existence as Mary? It's really hard to think that somebody could represent so many things that were so meaningful to me. I was in Once Upon a Mattress twice as a kid. So what I'm working on is a novel. And I think writing Shy united the thrill of writing fiction, even though it's not fiction. Mm. As we were talking about Jane Austen, it's written as if it were a novel, but about a real person doing the real thing she really did. But the technique is the technique you would bring to fiction. And and it made me want to write fiction again. And that's what my next book is. Yeah, I was going to say, you were still writing in Mary's voice for most of it. So that's definitely a fiction technique, a playwriting technique. And structurally, as you say, it's more like a novel. My last question before we do a little ending segment that I always do with my show. What 
would you want to be the biggest takeaway that people have from reading Shy? I guess I would say I would like people to be moved and inspired by a woman's insistence on creating her own life on her own terms. I definitely took that away from the book. So I think you accomplished that. And and I want to say it helps that it's about theater because we're all interested in theater, but I don't think it, I don't think that matters if you read it and you don't know these people or don't know about theater, that core of the story about her creating her life the way she needed it to be imperfect though it was is broadly relevant, shall we say, and maybe not just to women, maybe, and of course, I responded to it. I responded to it from the minute I met her. I just loved her. And I also felt she understood me. And she obviously had a thing for gay men as friends, as well as lovers, because we just got each other. And it was one of the great joys of my life to have been able to write this book and to give her what I felt she deserved, which was another hit. It's beautifully said. Yeah, I definitely think non-theater people would like it. My biggest takeaway was you got the sense she was a person who like willed her life into into existence out of sheer fortitude and strength and cleverness and all those things that you need to make a life and career. Because we talk about her privilege, but she was really up against some huge challenges throughout her life and really shaped something of her own as you say i want to end with five rapid fire questions called the thank you five segment like five minutes to places and oh you already answered one of these questions i'm gonna think of a fifth one some people get stressed by the top of your head but don't worry it'll be fun it'll be rapid fire and fun my first is do you have a favorite mary rogers anecdote It doesn't have to have been in the book, but it can be something that happened with you and her, something she did that was funny, anything like that. Well, I don't know if it makes sense to anyone else, but the first time my husband and I and our kids who were young went out to Quag, where where she and Hank had a house to visit, our, our kids were just in heaven. They were in the pool all day and playing with the dogs and as if to make heaven even better after dinner she said oh let's play scrabble now i knew about the games of course by then and i said oh fantastic do you have a board and she looked at me like do i have a board and then she brings out the scrabble set and i was overly awed by it it was like one of these it's on its own lazy susan and it's like the, the tiles are made out of gold or something and it's all like walnut and gilded and all these <laughs> things and I must have gushed about it a little too much and she said what do you think we live like pigs <laughs> <laughs> she had this wonderful whiskey voice from smoking too much which is ultimately helped do her in I don't know why that amuses me so much but uh, she had a wonderful way of easing the tension that some people might feel because of her wealth uh, and, and influence in the world by both 
sort of accepting it, stating it clearly, and mocking it at the same time. I do say in the book, she used this on a lot of people. If you went to dinner with her and Hank, the check was, not only did he palm it, it was gone somewhere before the appetizers. You could never find the check with them. And after one, the first time this happened, uh, we were walking from dinner to Carnegie Hall for a concert. And I said, Mary, I, I did not mean for you and Hank to pay for it. So shut up. She said, when your father writes Oklahoma, you can pay the check. Which, by the way, my father was slightly offended by when I told him. <laughs> Do you remember who won the Scrabble game? Was it her? I think I did. Good for you, winning Scrabble against Mary Rogers. That's pretty good. Was there a part of the book, I know it was nonlinear, but was there a part of the book that you enjoyed writing the most? None of it that was unenjoyable. But I liked the things where there was, where it would move from sections I had to create the theme of versus those that already presented themselves as astonishing little stories within the broader narrative. For instance the story of her first marriage and going off to her honeymoon and her friends, including Sondheim, showing up on the ship to sing her a song they had written that mercilessly mocked her father and her father suddenly showing up at that time. And that's how the first part of the book ends. There were things like that happened that I knew were just like, they were, you could feel the threads of her life coming together and really being pulled super tight just by the facts. And I loved sitting with those and slowly piecing them together. Another one was the trial marriage part. And another one, although terribly sad, was the death of her young son, which involved a lot of challenges too because of her lack of sentimentality. Yeah, that, that section was really beautiful, but spare, which I get. Yeah, that's why I say unimaginable loss in her life and yet somehow was still able to find joy. She's just an amazing person. I mentioned earlier she seemed the kind of person you want to get a drink with and goss with. You also mentioned the prodigious amount of drinking done by really her the upper generations, but also her generation. You knew her. What was her drink of choice? Well, there were different ones during different parts of her life. Uh, I mean, there's a whole section almost about a drink called Dubonnet, which itself has a fascinating way that somehow ties together Nazi collaborators and, and Julie Stein. Yeah. I mean, it's like, what is going on in this life? And yet also ties in with the, the abuse she suffered at her first husband's hand. Yeah. That was one, and I think it was a dry... I'm not a drinker, so none of it really meant very much to me per se. I just had to get sure. it right. But it means I'm not remembering it very well. But I will say, and I don't want to give it away, but the very end of the book has something to do with the drink. One for her and one for Hank, at which point they're, they're both gone. By the way, there's a whole section about her going to her drug dealer. Oh, the yeah. One that was recommended to her by Arthur Lawrence. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And also, I should say, I didn't have a question about this, but for women reading it and, and others reading it, um, her discussions about her weight and her struggles with her body and the expectations 
surrounding that as a woman and her mother and the marriage and what her body looked like on her wedding day is all very interesting to read now. So if you're interested in that, definitely read the book. My last question is a little controversial, so you don't have to answer if you don't want to. But (laughs) what do you think Mary would think about the current state of the theater slash the current offerings on Broadway? (laughs) She didn't like much. She didn't like much very much. But when she loved something, she was not only ecstatic about it, but would do everything in her power to promote it. She would reach out to the composer or the authors. She would talk to the Rogers and Hammerstein organization about getting money to them for their next work. She just was an incredible enthusiast when the work was great. Of course, we shared a, a lot of our taste, although not all of it. Jukebox musicals were anathema to her. So was a lot of her father's work. When they Frankensteined that Cinderella together for Broadway, she really loathed it until it turned out to be a hit. And then she said she made her peace with it. And she was pretty critical of certain aspects of, obviously, The Sound of Music. She didn't like really at all. And even in the classic show, she was pretty critical of certain parts of it. In, in general, she preferred her father's music with Lauren's heart to her, his music with Hammerstein. I didn't totally agree with her on that. But um, my feeling is she would have liked the small stream of shows, perhaps one a year for the last 10 years, that represent the best of contemporary musical storytelling in unusual and and quieter, more traditionally dramatic ways that did not so much involve confetti cannons. I don't know, as much as I loved Hairspray, for instance, I don't know whether that was something that she cared about. I don't think we ever discussed it. But a show like Kimberly Akimbo, for instance, I think would be something that she would she would really love. My friend Val just went on for Kimberly this past weekend. So exciting. She's a vacation. Is that for the first time? Yeah, she's a vacation swing. Jesse, thank you so much is the end of the Thank You Five segment. And all I have prepared or have to ask you, do you have anything that you feel like I didn't cover that you want to say, that you want to plug, anything at all? Yes, I, I guess I it, it behooves me to say that the much less expensive paperback is now available handier to carry around because it is a big book. But also, I'm thrilled to tell you about the audiobook, which took a long time to put together. And I have to say the cast, the cast ranges from the most brilliant person you could ever imagine as part of it and possibly the least brilliant person you could ever imagine as another part of it. Tell us tell us <laughs> more about the casting. Yes. Began talking about the audiobook. I made a wish list. There were four or five people I thought would be fantastic, but there was one I thought would be beyond fantastic. And I was told that she would never do it. And I said, can't we just try? And they tried, and she immediately said yes. And that was Christine Baranski. So Christine reads the entire 450 pages of Mary. Incredibly. She's not doing an imitation of Mary although she listened 
to some tapes of Mary to try to understand the speech patterns and the laugh, but she's not acting the role. She's reading the role. I say role because she did have to think a long time and we spent a fair amount of time talking together to understand Mary's character so that she would know, for instance, how to stay dry through the saddest material in the book. I say that the other performer is at the opposite end of the spectrum only because it's me. I read the, the notes. I, yeah, I wasn't going to diss some poor, actor, <laughs> some poor voiceover actor. No, I, first of all, had I known we were going to do an audiobook, maybe I would have written an easier part for myself because I spent a lot of the time saying when people were born and when they died. But some of the notes are just informational. They do get a lot more voicey as it goes along. But it was like reading, I think there's 700 or more notes in the book, maybe 800. And it was really exhausting for me. And then I realized that what took two days for me to record, Christine was in there for three weeks to record the book. Even if you just listen to a selection from it online, it's so great to hear her be married. I have to go listen. As I was telling you earlier before we started recording, I'm not really an audiobook person. Surprisingly, for someone who has a podcast, I just, I much prefer the reading of it all. But I'll definitely check that out. When did it come out, the audiobook? Uh, The audiobook and the paperback book came out in August. So great. And really, Christine Baranski was the perfect, perfect choice. I'm so glad she said yes. That's awesome. So yes, listeners, if you're at all interested, if you haven't read it already, go read Shy. You can buy it anywhere, paperback, much cheaper, much more convenient. I have mine right here. Listen to the audiobook if that's how you enjoy books or if you just want to hear the incomparable Christine Baranski and Jesse Green. It was so great having you back on the show and talking about this book that I just loved so much and like I said felt like it was tailor-made for me thank you for that thank you Katie it's really a great pleasure to talk with you about these things I I'll just have to figure out something else to do that will bring me back sometime in the future your novel it is theater it is in the theater world there you go by the way I do want to say that earlier you were like my friend Meg Wolitzer of course you're friends with Meg Wolitzer I don't mean to name drop but we've been friends since we were both guest editors at Mademoiselle when they still had that competition that Sylvia Plath once won and we 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 bonded over cryptic puzzles so it's been a little sideline of ours ever since tell her I love her whenever we get together (laughs) oh I I absolutely you should you should this has been just the best thank you call time listeners I think it'll make for a really good episode and discussion as always let me know what you're thinking in the comments, rate, subscribe, all the things I'm supposed to say now. Thank you for listening and reading the highlight of the week. We have more amazing guests uh, coming up in the coming weeks.